Well, hopefully, uh, you guys noticed the theme in today's songs, right? Our need for God, right? And so this, we've, we started this prayer session, and so why pray is the question today, right? Well, why pray? Because we need God, right? We can do nothing apart from God. And we'll see this very clear in our text today. What I love about this passage is how deep it is, but yet how simplistic it is. I mean, I, I doubt I want to say anything today that's going to rock your world, be new information to you. Most of what I'm going to talk about, you've heard already in the church. And so our tendency might be to tune this out, but there's a deepness to the simplicity that we must catch. That we must see these simple facts as the key to going deeper with Christ. Because I think when they're fully understood and they're fully applied to our lives, it makes all the difference in our relationship with God. So I ask that we would pay attention, to, even though I know it might be hard, because you're like, I've heard this before. Now I want to set the mood for what we're going to talk about today. Um, and this, some of this stuff that I learned, I never really thought about as I was studying this, and so it was kind of cool. So I think to fully understand the passage we're going through today, we got to understand the context. we got to understand the feel, the emotion behind this conversation. The passage we'll be reading today is part of Jesus' farewell discourse. This is Jesus' last sermon to his disciples. It starts in chapter 13 and goes to 17 starts in the house where the Last Supper took place and Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And then it kind of goes on as they travel along their way to the garden, the famous garden that we know so much about where Jesus agonized over in prayer, his people and, and becoming events. This is the garden where Jesus will be arrested. And, and so, as Jesus is preaching this sermon, I don't want us to think of it as like this formal teaching as I'm doing here today. I think we need to think of it more of that heartfelt conversation you had with your BFF around graduation, right? When we are all up in your feelings, you're anxious, you're nervous, because you don't know what's happening next. He's going to KU, you're going to K-State, it's like worlds apart, right? Like, can you even be friends anymore, with that rivalry, right? I mean, we, we see as we go through this story in 1321, Jesus talks about just his despair and being troubled. And, and many sermons have been preached on just the anxiety and just the fears and everything that Christ had in the garden. And so I imagine that this conversation took place in that emotion. And remember, this, this is the last things that Jesus is saying to his disciples, and so I am sure he chose his words very carefully, right? He is fully preparing them for the events that are about to happen, and he's preparing them for life without him. He spent his last three years with these guys in the trenches doing battle. I mean, these are his ride-or-die guys. So he's choosing his words. He's, letting, he want, he's emphasizing this is what you need to know. 
So I think even though this is simple, Christ is saying this is something that you need to know. This is of utmost importance to your walk as my disciples. So keep this in the back of your mind as we read the text and we focus in on our need for Christ. Be John 15, verses 1 through 8. John 15, verses 1 to 8. Please stand. Be up on your screen if, if you can't find it in your Bible or didn't bring one today. And if you do want a physical copy, there should be some back on the hospitality table. And you guys can take those home with you too. All right. John 15, verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you. <coughs> unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he is the one, or he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This parable teaches us that we must stay connected to Jesus and be sanctified by God if we desire to bear fruit that brings glory to God. Apart from connection with Christ and without God pruning us, we're useless. Like all parables, there's several elements in this story that help us to find the meaning. So we're going to walk through each of these elements so that we can understand these truths. There's three important elements going on in this parable. First, we have Jesus, the vine. Then God, the vine dresser. And then finally, the branches, which is the disciples. Jesus starts his parable with two small words. Three letters, in fact. But these tiny little words are packed with huge theological implications. In fact, if I wanted to, I could preach a whole sermon on these two words. But a lot of people have done that, and so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on these two words. But since they're in our text, we've got to deal with them. When Jesus uses these two words, he is equating himself and claiming to be God. That's a big deal. Like, this got, almost got him killed. Oh, wait, it did get him killed. <clears throat> when Jesus uses these words, he's drawing back to a very famous story that all the people at that time would have known, and hopefully that you guys know too. Story of the burning bush back in Exodus 3. Right? God and Moses, they're having this conversation about God delivering the Israelites out of the nation of Egypt. 
Moses, being a little scared, he's like, all right, God, who do I tell the Israelites sent me? And God says, I am who I am, which means I am the supreme God. I am the highest authority. There's nothing else on earth that I can swear by. He's the real deal, the bee's knees, like, he's it, right? And so when Jesus says these same words, I am, he's making the very same claim that God did, that he is the real deal. He's no joke, like, he is the highest being, right? Now, like the rest of these seven I am statements found in John, there's a second part to this I am, right? I am the vine. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this little clause that comes after the I am statement is where Jesus is trying to reveal something about his character, who he is, what he has come to do to the people. And oftentimes, this imagery is drawn from the Old Testament, For example, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's drawing back to the image of the manna in the wilderness. The very thing that sustained the Israelites as they traveled from Egypt to the promised land. And so when Jesus makes this claim, I am the bread of life, he's pulling all of the significance that was placed on the bread and the manna in the wilderness, which was a lot. Like, they valued that stuff. They put it in the Ark of the Covenant. Like, they told stories about this, right? We, we, we do it in bridge kids where we walk around the church eating crackers and stuff like that, right? Like, this stuff's a big deal. And so all of that imagery is then placed on Jesus. He is the bread that came down from heaven to sustain life. And so in our text today, we see that Jesus is the true vine. And so what Jesus is saying here is that he is replacing Israel. See, a lot of people have not heard of this imagery, but yet there are many passages where we see God calling the nation of Israel either a vine or a vineyard. And it's usually not friendly when he's talking about them this way. So I want to read a passage to help illustrate that, and hopefully you'll see some of the connections between this passage and the passage that we read today. So this is Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing... For my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleaned it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yields wild grapes. Some translate this bitter grapes. Verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, 
bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold an outcry. We see that the nation of Israel failed to produce the kind of fruit that God desired because they did not stay connected to God. They forgot about their God, forgot about his commandments. Therefore, they bore bitter fruit. And this, this passage comes in light of the exile, right? And so we know that God judged them harshly for not staying connected to God. But see, Christ is coming in contrast to this. Where Israel failed, Christ succeeds. Christ is the perfect vine. He is producing the best fruit ever. He is the vine par excellence. He is so closely connected to God the Father. He's the perfect example of what a grapevine should be. I mean, he's the kind of grapevine that you take to the state fair and all those gardening shows because you know he's going to win every award. He's the best grapevine ever. He's the only grapevine qualified to support the branches to bear fruit. He's the only vine that can withstand the bad weather and the unfavorable growing conditions. He's the only vine strong enough to hold up all of that fruit. He is the vine that has all the nutrients and the nourishment that the branches need to bear good fruit. And in fact, all the other fruit that's produced by other vines rubbish. Jesus is the only vine worth being attached to. The vine of money, it can't sustain you. The vine of fame and power, it'll never last. The vine of good works, disgusting before a holy God in light of the perfect fruit of Christ. To quote Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life kind of vine. There's no other vine that can save you or sustain you. And we're going to talk more about this when we get to the branches, so let us move on to the vine dresser. Jesus tells us that God the Father is in fact the vine dresser, meaning he is the master gardener. He knows what a good vine is. He knows what good fruit looks like. And he knows how to take care of the vine and the branches so that they produce the very best fruit. I don't know a lot about vines, grapevines, all right? I do have one behind my house. It came with the house. I didn't plant it. And so I know like this much about taking care of a grapevine. But it's interesting, the little bit about I do know. I know that pruning is necessary for a grapevine to produce fruit. In fact, vine, like parts of the vine that are more than a year old will not produce fruit. It's only the vine that grows that growing season that produces fruit. And I also know that when you prune a grapevine, you hack it up to like nothing, right? So in my case, my, my grapevine is like about three foot tall, maybe as big as my thumb, and then it's got like four little branches that come off about the size of my pinky, and they're like 18 inches long on each side of this, the center vine, right? 
And so even though it's hacked up that small, in a growing season, it grows about 10 foot in each direction. I mean, this thing covers my backyard. Fence, they got a little windmill that came with the house, right? Just covered in grapevines. Well, also interesting to me is that when I moved, first moved in, I knew nothing, and so I did nothing to this grapevine, right? So I had not trimmed this vine for two or three years. And yet in one growing season, this vine grew to as big as it had when I did nothing to it for two or three years. Isn't that remarkable? Tacked it down, grows up. Do nothing, it doesn't grow. And I say all this because I think this is the truth that Christ is trying to illustrate here. That grapevines must be trimmed. And what he's really talking about here is sanctification. The process where God trims us and shapes us into what we should look like, right? Now, luckily for us, God is the best vine dresser ever. He knows exactly when and where to trim. I mean, he can see the spots in our life that are going to turn into rot long before we ever do. So he snips. He can see the areas of our lives that used to produce fruit but are now just dead weight. And so he lops it off so that we can produce more fruit. Like I said, this is the process of sanctification where God continuously works on us so that we look more and more like the vine, his son, Jesus Christ. And this not only involves removing sin and the idols from our lives, but it's also putting into us and helping us to see where we can act more like Christ, where we can care about the things that Christ cared about, acting as Christ did, fighting for things that Christ did, like justice, equality, proper worship, loving God, and loving others. This trimming may look like beating an addiction. may look like having the strength to say no to temptation. It may look like, and it may look different in that our habits change. Where we're doing something that's not necessarily bad, but it's just taking too much of our time, and we have no time to just sit and abide in Christ. So God removes that from our lives so that we do not have any distractions, so that we can gaze fully upon God and become more and more like him. Sometimes this trimming's easy. Sometimes it feels good. Like when we finally let go of all that dead weight that we've been carrying around through worry and anxiety because we've handed it over to God and we're fully trusting God no matter what. Sometimes it's painful. When we lose a friend, leads us into temptation, or an idol that keeps us from following God. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense. Perhaps it's cancer or the loss of a job or the death of a good friend. 
hurts. It's confusing. But we can have confidence that it truly is for our benefit. The level of trust and obedience that comes from these experiences can only be achieved through these experiences, through this pruning. I think of my good friend, Al Ewer. He started World Impact here in Wichita. This guy is a titan of Christians, right? He has done so much work for the kingdom. And yet, he had to go through this pruning. A few years ago, Al got diagnosed with prostate cancer. And after all of his treatments, me and him were having breakfast. And he was telling me how glad he was that he had got cancer. He was glad for the pruning because it totally transformed his life through prayer. He told me how glad he was that God slowed him down from everything he was trying to do so that he could focus his time and energy into prayer. He was so full of the joy of Christ because he was abiding in God. He was so much stronger, so much more energy. Now this was hard for him to go through. There was no other way for him to learn it. And so what we need to remember also with this is that God is the one doing the pruning, not us. I didn't fully understand this when I was a new believer. I just thought, all right, I'm a Christian now. I got to do better. I got to sin less. I got to love people more. And I just, whatever, I, I got to put my nose to the grinding stone and I have to do this, right? But how wrong I was. No matter how hard I tried, I did not have the willpower. No matter how hard I tried, I didn't have the strength. I didn't have the endurance to be able to do this. I had to come to fully trust and fully depend on God to remove those things. I fully had to trust and obey him and allow him to do the work, even when it wasn't on my timetable, right? Because I would have loved to gotten rid of a lot of those sins early on in my life. But the master gardener was cutting what needed to be cut. He knew what it was. He knew what I could handle. He knew the lessons that I had to learn by going through some of that stuff. It was impossible without God. So as the branches, we are called to then abide, to rest, to depend fully upon this. Now Jesus, he was fully aware of what was about to happen in his life. He knew his fate. He knew that the cross was just a few days away. He knew that pruning was coming for his beloved disciples. He knew that they had to go through this. He wasn't trying to help them avoid it. He wasn't telling them, all right, now you flee to here, right? And the, No. He was preparing them. He was saying, you know what? Some hard times are coming. I got a little secret for you, all right? Listen up. This, this is how you get through this. This is how you will continue the mission that I have been training you for. 
This is how you will produce those good works and thus glorify God. By remaining in me. This, in fact, is the main thrust of this parable to show us that we must remain, that we must abide, we must be connected to Christ. The word abide is used in this passage more than the rest of the entire New Testament, in fact. It's used more than a dozen times. Kind of a big deal. John makes it quite obvious that the point Christ is trying to drive home to his disciples and to abide in him as he leaves. Now before we go on, I want to mention what this verse is not talking about. All right, Because several people misuse this verse. This verse is not talking about keeping or losing our salvation in any way, shape, or form. Christ is talking about a relational connection, not a salvation connection here. Hence, verse 3, you are already cleansed because of my word. And as the rest of scripture confirms to us, once saved, always saved. But we can neglect our relationship with Christ, hurting the relationship with him. It may be choosing a specific sin, which is disobedience, over trusting God and obeying him. It may be choosing to control a situation instead of just depending on Christ to take care of it. It may be the lack of communing with him on a regular basis because we're too busy or we didn't get anything out of the Bible the last time we read it, whatever it may be. We can choose any of these, but if we do, we will wither and die. In fact, we become like the unbeliever and that we're useless for producing fruit. And therefore, though we deserve the same fate, we don't get it. Because we are saved. We are sealed. We are gods. But the point is that we're pretty much useless like an unbeliever. If we are not keeping this connection, if we are not fully dependent upon the nutrients to come from Christ. So what does it mean to abide? Well, it means to simply keep in fellowship with Christ so that his life and work in us and through us can produce fruit. This means that we continually repent of our sins to keep connected to Christ. Because when we sin, it severs us relationally, not salvationally, relationally, right? And so that relationship needs to be mended. Just like if you offend your friend, right, there's strain. There's strife, there, there's discord between you. You guys butt heads, right? You don't want anything to be with each other. But then once we confess our sins, we ask for that forgiveness, right? The friendship is restored. We are reunited with him. It means that we replace ourselves in a position where Christ can be fully connected to us. Just as a branch is dependent on a vine to receive nutrients to produce fruit, so we must be dependent on Christ to receive those nutrients if we want to produce fruit. For example, I can love others because Christ first loved me. 1 John 4.19 I can forgive others because Christ first forgave me. Ephesians 4.32 I can give people hope because of the hope Christ has given me. 
1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. I can help others be set free because Christ has set me free. Romans 6 and Galatians 5. See, everything we need to produce these fruits is given us through Christ, through our union with Christ, through our uniting with him in salvation. And these fruits will produce glory to God. They produce glory to God by showing his power in our lives. When the world looks at us and he sees that we used to be a brawler or a drunkard, but now he sees how much we love and care for people. That glorifies God. When the world sees that we used to be worried all the time, anxious for everything, but now we have peace, we have joy from the assurance of trusting Christ to take care of all this stuff. That glorifies God. When the world sees people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people who are black and white, who used to be separated by law, coming together to worship God, that glorifies God. Because people see the power of God on display through this good fruit. But remember, everything we need comes from Christ. If we try to produce some of these same fruits on our own effort, or for our glorification and not for God's glorification, well, really what we end up producing is wax fruit. You remember, right, when you were a kid, sitting on your grandma's coffee table or counter, right? I mean, it looked delicious, shiny, right? Some of it even smelled real, right? And you were hungry, right? It's like, oh, this fruit looks so good. Oh, right? Y'all remember how disgusting that wax fruit was when you bit into it? That coated your mouth and it was just, ugh, right? Well, so is this, it's the same thing when we try and produce the fruits on our own power, on our own accord for our glorification instead of God's glorification. The sad news is that people in church are really good at producing this fake fruit because they really have no connection with God. God did not tell them to do those things. They're either trying to earn their salvation through those good works or they're saying, look how good of a Christian I am. I gave this much to them, and I did this and that, right? But it's a totally different fruit. It's a fruit that's able to sustain. It's fruit that is good to eat. When it's real fruit, when it's coming from God, when God is the one and it is his power, and the whole world looks at us and goes, yeah, that's God, because there's no way you could do that. That's God, because there's no way that you could preach that good of a sermon. That's God, because... You can't cure cancer. That's God. That's the sign of a good fruit. So then how do we abide in Christ? Well, unfortunately, this passage doesn't really give us a nice, tidy list or show us a 12-step process to abiding in Christ that we want. I think, for, I think partially Christ doesn't have time to reiterate everything he's been teaching over the last three years to these guys. And it 
don't think that was the point. I think the point that he was really trying to emphasize, the point that he wanted them to get, was that apart from him, they could do nothing. He knew that the Holy Spirit's coming, and he would help them figure out how to remain in Christ. But he wanted them to remember, you have to remain in me. If you leave today and you only remember that without Christ you can do nothing, and with Christ you can do anything, I'll consider this a successful sermon. But since it sounds a little bit like prosperity gospel, because I didn't use all my time the last time I preached, we're going to go on, all right? Verse 7 says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is not only a promise, but it's also a proof. It shows us that the power we have available to us as well as the power that is working in us. This is what I mean. When we are connected to Christ in such a deep manner, we have access to this limitless power to do amazing things. Don't believe me? Ask your neighbor. Ask your bridge group. What prayers have you seen answered? Because I've seen friendships restored. I've seen marriages saved. I've seen gang leaders become pastors. I've seen terminally ill people be healed. So don't tell me that there is not limitless power in prayer. I see it every day. Every day. This power is fully on display in our lives when we are abiding in Christ. But it's also proof that they are abiding in Christ because people who are abiding in Christ, they don't pray like other people. Their prayers are not small. Their, their prayers are not for frivolous things, selfish things. God, help me to get this Lamborghini. God, help me to do the best in this school. <clears throat> right? But their prayers are God-sized prayers. They're praying for entire nations and neighborhoods to bow their knee to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're praying that addicts would be set free. Prayers for walls of hostility to be torn down. Prayers for God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So when we abide in Christ, when we are fully dependent on him for our very existence, we ourselves are changed. We then start looking more and more like Christ. And the things we start praying for are more and more aligned with what God wants, with what's in God's will. And it's true. Sometimes he might not answer it, even though it seems like it is in God's will. Like that person to be healed. Right? But God knows more than us. God knows what he's doing with that. God knows the pruning that he's taking place. God knows the perfect purpose for that. And so we can just trust him and remain in him and remain in that trust. He's got this. I mean, he created this whole world. He set up complicated things like the water cycle and photosynthesis, right? He, he's done things that our smartest people still can't explain. 
If he can handle all that, I'm pretty sure he can handle whatever you take to him in prayer, even if it's not how you want it to go. But that's a freebie. So briefly, as I close, I do want to give you guys some practical steps to abiding in Christ. First, if you want to learn more about abiding in Christ and just what all really is involved in this, because really our whole salvation is in this concept called union with Christ. This is kind of the Paul, Pauline term for abiding in Christ. is called union in Christ. And so many, uh, Paul and many other biblical writers have written <clears throat> about this topic, union with Christ. There are some really good books out there. I was reading one this week on the topic. Um, so you can pick one of those up and start reading, uh, reading those books to learn, to study more about this union with Christ. Second thing you can do practically, and I hope that you're already doing this, but the spiritual disciplines. You know, prayer, fasting, Bible reading, Bible memorization, on and on and on, right? That's the stuff that you guys have heard before. But it's amazing how often we lack doing this. Where we just get too busy, or we don't see the benefit of it, right? And so we just slowly, slowly, slowly pull away from it. We slowly wither, start to die. And then we realize... Holy cow, I haven't read my Bible in like a month. i got to get back into this thing because when I do, we just we feel more connected to God. We feel better. And it's important that we, we view these spiritual disciplines not as a checklist, right, or some magic formula that if we do these, God will do this, which I'll admit happens a lot in my life. I'm a very task-driven person, and so... I really have to work and not making this a task that I have to do. I really enjoy what Richard Foster uh, says about the spiritual discipline. He's kind of the modern guru on spiritual discipline. So check out one of his books if you want to find out more about the spiritual disciplines. Um, But this is what he says. He defines them like this. God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving his grace. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I love that definition, right? They're not this to-do list. These are a way that we prepare our hearts, that we put ourselves in the position where we can receive God's love, where we can receive God's power, where we can receive all the nutrients that we need all the things that we are dependent upon in our lives. So side note, if you want to start the spiritual disciplines, since we're kind of, you know, focusing on this as a church, may I suggest the discipline of prayer? I suggest this because kind of one of the easier ones to do. Right? I mean, you don't need to be any special place. You don't need to be, have any special equipment to do this. I mean, it's just a conversation that you have with God. You can have this in your car while you're driving. Don't get too deep into prayer. 
I've definitely missed a lot of exits because I've in prayer. <laughs> but this is just, I think, one of the easiest, but also one of the most important. Because if you want to get stuff out of your Bible reading, you need to pray. If you want to connect with God here on Sunday mornings, you need to pray. If you want to get something out of this sermon, you need to pray. If you want to bear fruit to bring glory to God, come on now, help me, help me preach this. You need to. Right. Prayer is, prayer is the thing, man. It, it's, it's the magic juju, if you will, that really keeps us tethered to God and just helps us with all of the other disciplines. And so I want to ask, or I want to end by asking this question. And only you and God can answer this question. What kind of branch are you? Have you been cleansed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are you just a stick lying on the ground, dead, waiting, waiting to be thrown into the fire? If you're a stick that's never been cleansed and connected to God, today is the day. What are you waiting for? Accept Jesus Christ. Hear his words and be cleansed and united with Christ. His words are simple but deep. That though you are a sinner, though you are separated from God and though you fully deserve the penalty for your sins, God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place, to take your punishment. By believing in these words, by trusting in his words, you are cleansed. I really enjoyed the illustration that Brandon used last week of the tightrope walker across Niagara Falls. And how everyone said, oh yeah, yeah, you can do it. None of them were willing to jump on his shoulders and go across. So when we say, have faith in Christ, believe the words of Christ, that's what we mean. Believe these words in such a way that you are willing to climb on Jesus' back and let him do all the work. Perhaps you're a branch that's already been cleansed by Christ's words. Are you remaining in him? Are you abiding in him? Are you relying on that same faith that saved you to sanctify you and conform you to Christ's image? I mean, this passage makes it clear that those who are in Christ but not remaining connected are as useless as the unsaved. So if you aren't connected to God, as we already talked about, it's time to repent, be reconnected with God, and commune with him probably through the, the spiritual disciplines. And so if you need help with any of this, come talk to me, come talk to Brandon, talk to people in your bridge group. Say, hey man, I'm struggling to read my Bible every day. Can you remind me? Hey, I'm struggling to pray. Can you hold me accountable? Can you ask? Can you make sure that I'm praying? Hey, I want to I wanna read the Bible, but... I don't really understand it. Can we get together and like read the Bible together? There's people in this church that will love to do this with you. Don't be afraid to ask them. 
Ask them, how, how did they remain abiding with Christ? Maybe they got the keys, or maybe they're struggling just like you. And together, you two can walk together to strengthen the branch, your branch that's connected to the vine. And lastly, if you're connected and tapped into God, not only continue to do so, but help others. Help others find the same joy and strength that you have by abiding in Christ. Disciple somebody. Grab anybody. Could be kids in our youth group. Could be a visitor. Grab them and say, hey, would you like to join in a discipleship relationship? If you need materials, we have materials. If if you're just scared and I don't know what to do, it's simple. Share your life with them. Show them how you do your relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't have to be perfect at it. You don't have to have all the right answers. You just have to be willing to do it. Hopefully you've picked up something today. Hopefully you, the Spirit's working in you and said, yeah, I got to get more connected. Or hopefully it's saying, man, I need to start producing more fruit by discipling other people. Like I said earlier, if you just leave here knowing that we are totally dependent on Christ and that we can do nothing without him, that's a win. That's a win. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the perfect vine dresser. We thank you that you are skillful in your pruning of us, Lord. And so, Father, we ask that you would prune us, that no matter how painful it may be, that you would still do it, Lord. Father, we thank you for the vine that you gave us, the vine that gives us everything that we need produce good fruit. Father, may we be branches that bear that good fruit. May we remain connected to your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we just ask for your spirit, the helper that has come with this, to just be working in all of our lives, to draw us closer and closer to your son. And Father, that we would not leave until we are connected with him. Father, as we go out this week, May you put your good fruit that you have produced in us on display for the whole world to see. Father, we are asking for revival for this city, revival for this neighborhood. But as your word says, Lord, they need to see your fruit that glorifies you. And so we just pray, Lord, that we would put ourselves in positions that this neighborhood would see the good fruit that you have grown in us. Your wonderful and glorious name. Amen.